Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we are joined by Sasha Sidorkin, National Research University, Higher School of Economics. Sasha Sidorkin, welcome to Pipeline. Hello. Now, as you're familiar with our format, perhaps you might uh, tell our listeners how you began doing philosophical work in education. Did one come before the other, philosophy and then education, or education and then philosophy, or did they arise for you simultaneously? Actually, I did uh, one graduate degree in Russia in sort of educational theory, and then when I came to the United States, I applied to the University of Washington and also was planning to do sort of uh, organizational theory, I guess, and application to education. But then I think it probably happens to many of us. I uh, discovered Professor Donna Kerr, was, is her name, uh, at University of Washington. And then I took one class of her and that was it. Sort of, yeah, I realized that's what I really want to do and maybe I realized that I'm good at it. Um, so that was, I guess it was a 90, Two or ninety-three, something like that. So, and that's where I started. And uh, my work, my origin, my sort of a doctoral dissertation was on uh, an ontological understanding of dialogue in education. And I uh, read mostly Martin Buber and Mikhail Bakhtin. The choice uh, was fairly obvious to me because Bakhtin is a Russian writer. I could read him in an original, of course. Yeah, and Martin Buber, I learned about him uh, a year before when I did my master's degree in peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. <clears throat> and there was uh, Chaim Gordon, a professor from Israel who was a Buber scholar. So he sold me a Buber. And because their uh, theories were sort of similar and related, uh, that's what I did. Uh, now, before uh, Bakhtin and Buber, right, before the, the doctoral studies, um, were there questions of education that were animating you, and, and, and to your mind, how were those interests uh, best served by uh, a study of educational theory? I was uh, originally sort of trained as a history teacher in Russia, in Siberia, so I got a degree and I taught a little bit in schools, and then I started to work for a college in Novosibirsk, teaching educational theory courses. So I knew a fair amount about schools and schooling. And then uh, when I came to the United States, I mean, I think it was very uh, interesting because the questions that are asked here are very different than those that are asked in Russia. And uh, maybe that at some point prompted me to think about uh, bigger questions. Uh, and I always, uh, you know, I try to do also some empirical research and I never found it to be as satisfying because by necessity, if you do a lot of empirical studies, they're fairly narrow. Somebody has to figure out a theory for you and then you can do the, uh, then you can do the empirical studies. And, uh, and I also was always appalled at how unquestioning many of the empirical studies are. So people measure something, they're not quite understanding what they're measuring. And because it's measurable, it becomes important to them. Um, um, so I just realized that somebody has to make the tools first. Mm. 
for the research. I do have a great respect for research and empirical studies, but um, they all depend on us, uh, on theory people, to have a lens through which they, they look at the world. And if they don't, uh, it's really deficient and kind of a shallow research. Now, earlier you mentioned your dissertation and some of the uh, questions and issues that were motivating you at that time. But what's some of the work that you've done since then? What are some of the perspectives or tools that you've uh, been able to offer the research community through your work? I guess uh, my first impulse was kind of to shed light on how the schools as social organizations work. Um, so, and uh, I thought that theory of dialogue kind of offers a different way of looking at schooling and how schools operate and what, what, what animates them. Um, and uh, since that, I, I, I continued work with Bakhtin and uh, started with Baloshin and other people from Bakhtin Circle as well. Um, but also, at some point, it was actually, I think, very specific uh, uh, time in my in my thinking where I published a paper where I said well you know that that is an economic question and of course the next step would be something like paying students to learn and then I said in the paper but of course that's an impossible sure. uh, solution uh, and after that I started to think about well, why was it an impossible solution part of the part of the switch was that I realized that <clears throat> dialogue is not enough. I mean, I just, I think I underestimated the depth of the problems we have with education. So when I realized that, well, maybe it's bigger than just this or that organization of schooling, maybe there is a problem with schooling itself as an institution, then uh, that propelled me to start reading economic theory. And so lately I've been more interested in <coughs> philosophical critique of the human capital theory. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm doing it is that in educational policy making circles human capital theory is the king I mean that's how if you if you walk into any ministry of education or department of education in the world uh, they will all operate even though some people don't know the, the terminology but they will they will think of education as an investment uh, and uh, they will think of return on investment and all of that and that is strikingly different than the conversation that we're having at scholarly conferences. It's rarely about that. So, and I, uh, I just realized at some point that we actually need to engage with those people. Uh, because, like any other theory, like, you know, human capital theories and economic theories, so there, there hasn't been done a proper uh, eco uh, philosophical critique of it. And if you read it closely, there are many holes. You can drive a truck through them. But people who make the, the decisions and operate it, they don't notice them. And uh, that's what I think we do as a profession. We notice those big holes and we uh, try to problematize them. Now, uh, it sounds to me as though your approach is to critique these sort of human capital ways of uh, thinking about education. Uh, but now, uh, to your mind, um, is this way of thinking necessarily weak or lacking? Or, or is it that we just have to be more uh, aware or more careful about the ways in which our assumptions uh, might motivate the creation of uh, policies or inform educational practices? Uh, is, that, is, is that right? Well, that's a very good question because, yes, there is a, I think there are also some people in our society who try to 
reject that way of thinking about education altogether. It's like you can't apply it to education. And I think part of it is sort of the Michael Walters, you know, the theory, the theory of spheres. Oh, yeah, spheres of justice. Uh, and I don't think it's quite right because, I mean, people who make decisions in education, and I, you know, I know those people, they do have a point. And the point is that education is becoming more and more expensive. And it doesn't seem to be getting more uh, more effective in, in any kind of way that they're trying to measure it. So I think to engage with them, we do need to understand their their dilemmas that they're working with. Um, so I have a great respect for that, their way of thinking because actually, you know, human capital theory has very um, demonstrated a predictive value. I mean, you know that people who go to school for more years will get higher salaries. And it's been shown empirically in many countries, in many different contexts, it still works. So there is, uh, there is this Mincerian equation that kind of sort of universally work. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm taking this very, very seriously. And I think uh, that my, my sort of agenda is not to reject a way of thinking, but enrich it, actually, because I think the human capital theory doesn't need the doesn't need to be thrown in a you know, dustbin of history, but it does need to grow because I think it gets kind of stuck in a very simplistic understanding of uh, sort of the cognitive skills make people more productive so they create more value for the economy. It, it's not like that. It's a lot more complicated. And, uh, and I'm not against measuring things. It's just I think we need to measure more things and we need to measure them better than we're able to do it now. Yeah, and I, I could imagine that, on your view, philosophers are uh, probably very well situated to recommend to us what we ought to uh, study or measure. Um, so I, I guess I wonder, are there particular questions that arise for you as questions that philosophers really ought to be engaging, or are there some questions that you see philosophers really beginning to address? Well, I think one of the biggest issues that we have to, and nobody else can tackle, is is schooling really improvable? I mean, or, or is this a, a sort of a model of education that's run its course? And there is no answer. I mean, it could go either way, but uh, from my point of view, I think we're nearing the limit as to how much schools can actually provide. I mean, and there are certain persistent problems like the racial inequality, um, and actually the what students do in schools is fairly ineffective in, in, in any kind of measure. So do we push, uh, do we continue trying to improve the institution or are we trying to think of something else? And so and, and anytime we face with really dramatic choices like that, you need the philosopher to, I mean, that, that cannot be experimental. It's sure. proven in any way. So you need to kind of think through the problem. And um, So yeah, I mean, that's, those are the big questions. Are we sticking with schools or not? Wow, that's just a huge question for us to think about. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I think also there is a, a certain sort of shifts in the societal, society's understanding of education because the, the massification of education really just reached its, uh, well, it's been reaching its climax in, uh, in, uh, developing, in developed countries where majority of population will start to go to college. So, and that, changes something. Uh, it, it just changes both the nature of educational experience for people. Because anytime something gets uh, massified, it changes its nature. Uh, and it also imposes a tremendous economic 
strain, uh, strain on the society because it's just very expensive. So something has to give there. I mean, and, yeah. So we, I mean, we're facing really sort of a limits of human development. I mean, what what is it? What's the ultimate? Are we all going to go to graduate school and have all we'll have PhDs at some point, or is it absolutely impossible in terms of economic uh, burden and uh, the cost of education? So those are really big questions. Um, so we are turning, um, I think, we're turning from society that is educated into the society that's sort of centered around education. So education is really becoming the major industry. It has become a major industry. For example. You know, the U.S. spending 8% of GDP on education. Um, I think medicine is probably the higher, higher maybe about 16%. But yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not the things, it's not the, the, the hardware. Um, so and education is moving from being a supporting industry to being really central to the... We don't understand what that means, really. So we're becoming, uh, from being an educated society, we're become, becoming an educational society. So where does it lead us? I mean, do we need to rethink also education? Uh, and going back to the human capital theory, those, those people who, who invented it, uh, they pointed out that before about 1960s, education was uh, considered to be consumption. And they said, no, no, it's not a consumption, it's actually a productive function of the society. But they overdone it because education is also a consumption, sure. uh, and it's also many more other things as sure. well. People go to school not to become productive workers. Uh, so, and they become, they go to school to live. You know, it sort of becomes a central. The institution of schooling is defining the age. You know, with actually a very interesting uh, story with the sort of the developmental psychology. There was no adolescence until high school came into play. Uh, people didn't, people, there was no specific stage of it. So once the high school comes in, then we realize, oh my God, we now have a different age group. So the institution. Institution, e exactly. Yeah. So there is no natural development of human beings. And now we have this whole notion of sort of a young adult population, kind of, you know. Uh, yeah, prolonged yeah. adolescence, you know, college and graduate students. Who are they? I mean, and they becoming sort of their own phenomenon. So it's, uh, the education is profoundly um, growing in the society in many ways, not just in qu uh, quantitative, but also in qualitative sense. So, and we need to get our heads around it. There is no good theory as to where it's all going. Yeah. to work on. Well, that sounds like a question that we need to answer across very many spheres. Sasha Sorokin, thanks so much for chatting with us. Yeah. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.